Hello everyone, Lucas here. Before the beginning of this episode, I wanted to make a special announcement. We've started a Patreon. If you were to go to patreon.com slash lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, you would find the Patreon for 27 Media. That's the umbrella that covers The Math of You, Crossroads of Destiny, and Dashcast, all three of my podcasts, as well as the upcoming podcast, The Lost Light. The Patreon is to help cover hosting costs, domain registration, audio equipment, and any number of little expenses that crop up in running podcasts. Additionally, you can qualify for cool rewards, like my friend Alex Hardison, who is my very first patron and has earned some on-air thanks. So thanks very much, Alex. You can also qualify for early access to the show, preferential treatment of your questions, and even a handwritten letter from yours truly. I'm even going to throw in some one-of-a-kind Polaroids that I've shot around Sydney as a special bonus. If you support at the highest level for three months straight, I'll even have you on as a guest to talk about whatever you want. However, if you don't have any bucks to spare, that's fine. I'm going to keep doing this show exactly as I always have and release it for free to you. If you do have a few dollars to spare, then why not head over to patreon.com slash and become a patron. I'd really appreciate it. And now, back to the show. Welcome to The Map of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our third episode, I'll be talking to Jetta Ray, journalist, co-host of the greatest podcast in the history of our sport, and creator of Fry Havoc, an intersectional cooking block. We'll be discussing the mystery of Dungeons and Dragons, the collective noun for a group of orcs, the struggle to chill, and how it's hard to claim you're a superior species if you can't brush your own hair. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and tell you how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. So, Jetta, for those who may not know you, why don't you run through who you are in a nutshell? What makes you, a, to quote Chris Haley, a beautiful, unique snowflake? Hey, uh, my name's Jetta, Jetta Ray. I'm a writer, a journalist. Um, I have a website called Fry Havoc. It's an intersectional food site. I write about wrestling. I write about pinball. I was the, the first, the inaugural editor for Harlot Magazine. Right now, I uh, I do a lot of copywriting. I've actually begun assembling my own little uh, stable, my Heenan family <laughs> of YA and erotica authors, and I'm, I've started doing editing and literary agenting work. And I presume you're going to start wearing a sparkly warm-up jacket with a fur collar? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, also, I'd say you... hey, hey, by the way, the greatest cast. Mention that. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, you might have heard my voice before on the greatest podcast in the history of our sport. It's a podcast for me and Doc Destructo uh, talk about WCW. I've actually been trying for, it feels like a year now to get you on to talk about Australian wrestling. But here's the thing. See, I, I would love to be on your show. Like, uh, I, would, I think that would be amazing, except for I don't know anything about Australian wrestling because it always happens out in the far suburbs of Sydney to the point where it would be like a two-hour drive to get there. And I don't drive. My girlfriend does. And the idea of trying to convince my girlfriend, hey, do you want to drive me out to a bingo hall? Yeah, you can drive me there and you can come and watch this terrible wrestling. Although I did convince her to go and see Dragon Gate at the Karate ah, Hall nice. in, in Tokyo. And that was an experience, and we both had a lot of fun there. Although I'm, I'm going to say that Australian independent wrestling is not going to be up to Dragon Gate levels, but that, that may be just a presumption on my part. So tell me a little bit about how you grew up. I was born in Philadelphia, which is a, a city... Of brotherly um, love. Yeah. <laughs> uh, home of the most infamous King of the Ring of all time. <laughs> it's on the east side, my upper east side, um, northeast side of America. Mm-hmm. And I'm was moved as a child from there to Germany when I was really young. And so most of my like milestones, like learn to read, go to school, like the first Halloween that I can really remember participating in. And and the first like other of these, like the first Thanksgiving I remember are all in these, in this other country. Really, they, they did Thanksgiving in Germany. That's that's. Um... Well, I lived in a. My father was in the military, so I lived by a NATO base. Oh, I see. Yeah, that explains and, and, it. Yeah, and when you NATO bases tend to be very proactive in making sure that all the countries that have people there, you know, have representation culturally. Oh, that's cool. You know, so even though I was a child, you know, we still had Thanksgiving parties and we still had Halloween parties and we still had all of these these things, even though we were in another country. They do that largely for morale. And also, basically, when you're American, you get whatever you want, you know. <laughs> as, as someone who attempted to bring Halloween parties to Australia, where it's not really celebrated, I would try and get my friends involved. And after four years of every Halloween being the only one with any energy behind it, I kind of gave it up because I'm just like, it, it's not happening. Like I would drag my friends all over and make them get into costume and we'd go to a local bar where we were viewed with skepticism and hostility. Uh, after four years of that, I basically went, eh, you know, it's, it's, it's not really a thing anymore. <laughs> but I loved Halloween when I was a kid. It's huge in Canada. In fact, uh, I've mentioned it before, grade four, I dressed up as one of the bushwhackers and my dad had to source me some black and white camo pants and I was repeatedly asked if I was a robber or a burglar. Which is, which is great because if you wore if you wore that costume here in America, people just assumed you were part of a white separatist movement. <laughs> you know, so potato potato. <laughs> so I I'm, I moved from Germany back to America in Arizona, which is on the other side, way other side. Mm-hmm. And I and I think you know Arizona has kind of a climate sort of comparable to Australia, at least the parts that we all see in movies. Mm-hmm. After I graduated college, I moved out here to the Bay Area. I live in Oakland. I used to do a lot of community stuff, a lot of like LGBT and a lot of like women's community and trans community stuff. And I, I've been doing less of that and trying to focus more on doing creative stuff that I enjoy. It When you are paid, when you can get money to have your politics, it can be... In software development, we talk about what's called technical debt. And technical debt are 
like the weak spots and the holes in the wall, vulnerabilities in your armor, so to speak, as you, rather than fix like basic infrastructure stuff, you just implement features to sort of go around it. Okay. Um, and, and that can happen when you are a professional, you know, quote, air quote, professional feminist or whatever. You can accrue a sort of technical debt where you feel you feel sort of financially obligated to hate things and financially obligated to complain. That sounds exhausting. It is extremely exhausting. And that is why, like, right now I'm focusing on doing more fiction stuff. I'm putting together a fiction podcast. A bunch of our mutual friends are now clients of mine writing YA and erotica. And so that's that's more that uh, I'm finally going to, like, sit down and start putting together my like my ukulele demo album. So I'm, I'm working on a lot more of that stuff. That's um, cool. And um, so th- when you, you were in Germany and then moved back to Arizona, what kind of kid were you? Were you, were you quiet? Were you outgoing? Were you the kind of person who would involve others? Were you by yourself? I perform extroverted really well. Mm-hmm. I, I, so I come from, my family are all like really almost aggressive introverts. Okay. You know, I remember in college at one point, my father being upset that I, I like went out and I went out to a school function. Oh. Um, I was like, dad, you have to understand I'm, I'm in college. And I'm at the time I was a theater and music double major. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have to go to like the orchestra shows. I have to like, that's my department. I have to do those things. And my father would always be like, I don't want you gallivanting. I don't want you like... <laughs> Being around people. Like, my parents were very... My parents did not like that I had friends. My parents didn't like that I facilitated relationships with people. They, re- they really resented that. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that, that was how moving so much impacted them. Moving so much impacted them that they didn't let people in. My parents didn't have friends. You know, we never... We never had cookouts with other families. We never went to other families' houses. My parents basically made relations on a survival basis. And as a result, I learned I learned as a teen how to be how to fake extrovert and how to fake almost like, you know, like a perpetual cocktail host. The all singing, all dancing Jetta. Yeah. But I'm 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 also just by ne- by the like nature of my growing up, I'm actually very introverted. I'm very I'm very solitary. A lot of it is that I need constant activity to occupy myself. I don't, I'm the kind of person who, I like to go to a bar. I like to go to a bar. I like to order one or two drinks, um, play pinball if they have it, watch the game if they have it, play any arcades or whatever. And then I like to go. I I, I like to have a lot of flurry of activity. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if people are with me, socialize around that. I find the prospect of going to a bar and sitting down for like hours and talking really overwhelming and in the bay area that's what most people do right um most people do not zip from place to place doing pub crawls all the time you know it's i have my bar and i go and i just chill and i i I struggle to chill i struggle to hang out and so i'm i'm someone who really likes activities i like i like activities i like games i like doing things i like always being active in the moment because 
hanging around, doing anything, sort of like looking at people and, and trying to like facilitate long-term conversation is really stressful for me. And I think a lot of that comes from, I spent most of my life in confined spaces with people I'd known all my life. Okay. And you don't have to talk to those people. <laughs> like, you know, you sort of run out of things to say. So my, my, most of my family still live in Arizona and I call them, I try to call them once a month or so and we don't talk much and it's not that I don't care for them and it's not that we're not tight. It's just, you know, we were the sole American family in a, in a German suburb. No, more like a German, like rural country town, you know, (laughs) Germany, which has generally not always had great opinions of Americans. And so... You know, I, we grew up, we basically were confined to yeah. a house that we couldn't really leave for years. And and when you do that, you just basically say all the things you need to say. You know, I, I'm now like a radical and an anti-capitalist and I believe in things like, I believe racism exists. And so that sort of puts me at odds with my family. But even <laughs> that only gives you so much extra, that still only gives you so much extra mileage in terms of conversation. You know, it's like an extra two minutes tops. Well, you know, police kill people. Well, you're wrong. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> well, when one party doesn't budge, it makes a conversation very short. Um, I actually wanted to ask, as you, when, did any of you speak German when you were living in Germany? Yes, I, I had to be kind of the interpreter okay. for my family to our landlord because <laughs> my parents did not want to learn any of it. When I, was, when I was a kid, we did live for quite a while in, in French Canada, in Quebec. And while my, my father's family was all French-Canadian, uh, as was a good chunk of my mother's family, uh, I wasn't confident enough in what I had learned to speak it. And speaking as you did about that isolation feeling of being a, one type of person in a colony of others, um, I was going to ask how the language affected that. But if you were speaking it, that does change things. Because I remember very clearly, for all that I was able to get by in French, I never wanted to say anything for fear that the first thing I said would be wrong or they wouldn't understand or I'd botch it and just be left kind of hanging out there. Well, I mean, it doesn't help that Montreal has a really persistent uh, reputation as being highly segregated and highly contentious. Hmm. Um, especially like Quebecois. I learned French in high school and we had a Quebecois teacher. Oh, so, so you went came out with the accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, no, no, no. So my French teacher was Irish, like, like straight up <laughs> worked. Yeah, worked, worked in some like uh, diocese in in Ireland proper. And so her French made no sense. And like my French couldn't decipher it for your life. <laughs> and I learned that because my newspaper uh, in journalism in high school was Quebecois. And, you know, one time she was like, I, I appreciate that you want to impress me, but um, <laughs> please don't. <laughs> you, it makes you I mean, you, you know, honestly, it sounds like you're you're mocking me sometimes. <laughs> and if you ever go to Montreal, they will just like tear into you. Yes. Whereas um, my dad's family is from Hull, which is on the other side of the river from Ottawa, which is the nation's capital. And so half of the population of Hull works in Ottawa in various government buildings, because to have a government job in Canada, you have to be functionally bilingual. And so it's this huge job market. But there's also a bit of resentment that comes from that, that everyone in Ottawa 
is is basically from Quebec, from the from the French side. Yes, my dad tells very terrible stories of outsiders, rumblefish style gang fights between French Canadian kids and English kids from Ottawa who would come over to pick up girls. And so there, there's a whole thing there that is not worth going into right now, but it's a fascinating look <laughs> into the world. All I know is it left me with whenever I learned French, instead of moi, I would say moi, because along with other things, that's one of the very strong dialect aspects. And uh, yeah, it would get me laughed at by my Parisian French teachers who had come to Canada for an easy semester. <laughs> so initially, when we set this up, you said you wanted to talk about Dungeons and Dragons. So yes. walk me through where in this uh, scenario that we've discussed, where does Dungeons and Dragons come in for you? I started playing it in elementary school while I was in Germany. Okay. I played it off and on all the way up until a few years ago. So I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for about, off and on for about 25 years. Um, so, so how and, many editions is that? Is that, well, I suppose, you would have started, would it be third edition or would it be before that? N- no, I, I played very, mm, I think the first books that we got our hands on were first edition or oh, okay. 1.5. OG. Yeah, and so I've I've played bits and pieces of just about every edition, and also like Advanced Dungeons and Dragons and Forgotten Realms, and a lot of the other offshoots. I mean, Baldur's Gate, which is a you know a PC game, Dragon Dice, <laughs> the D and D sort of industrial complex at one point was very expansive. It's now D and D is has been very much supplanted by World of Warcraft, and that when when that was when I sort of knew that my that my days well okay all right so i am just old enough yeah and young enough i'm in this like sweet spot where i remember when you didn't have internet mm-hmm. or when you did have it it was just to send emails right, right. or you know view a shitty angel fire site <laughs> and this GeoCities web rings yeah and so in the course of my life i've hit this sort of parabola or slingshot maneuver where a lot of kids played it when I was young and then internet happened and then no one played it because then you had, you know, MMOs and now people are starting to get into it again because we had this heyday of, oh, I want to go online and, and play games. But with that came, you know, you had this like spike, but with that spike immediately after this sort of renaissance came the culture of online harassment. Yeah. Um, and this, I talk about this with pinball a lot. Pinball is very popular in the Pacific Northwest, specifically um, Oakland, Portland, and Seattle. It's 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 huge, and it's it's growing a a, a massive resurgence in San Francisco too, obviously. But and a lot of that is because people are just tired of online gaming culture. You know, we're tired of every aspect of our gaming experience being commodified for some sort of greater capitalist purpose. And also I'm tired of playing games where people call me a fag. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like at least in Dungeons and Dragons, you can throw a fireball at somebody. <laughs> um, and, and, and honestly, if your DM ever puts you in a, a campaign where NPCs throw slurs at you, um, like you, you can like, step like, out and go, what the hell, man? Come on. Well, yeah, that's like not someone you should have in your life. And yeah, you can just step out, you know. And the thing is, I, I think w- when you talk about how it's sort of the switch to World of Warcraft, what I also think happened is that it allowed for people to start having conversations and realized that some of their experiences with tabletop gaming were fairly universal. There were people who at some point 
God, I'm going to say this phrase, experimented with Dungeons and Dragons at some point in their life. And you get stuff like, for all that Penny Arcade's a little bit reprehensible now, stuff like having a huge chunk of packs be about tabletop gaming. And having those companies then start to go, okay, well, we have this huge community that is now using the internet to talk to one another. And yeah, they also have a bit of nostalgia for the pen and paper tabletop role-playing. So why don't we play to that using the internet as that communications tool to set up the mm-hmm. in-person ex- experience or even occasionally like look at the explosion of things like hearthstone which is just yeah, enormous absolutely. and you can see that there is a market around that and yeah definitely without like to have that kind of that deep experience of a pen and paper role-playing game without having to go all right i need to hit the button to make the guy punch the thing it's like no i'm gonna roll a dice and make a decision and take it from there so i think that's that's also part of it and it's sort of that ouroboros where the internet lets you know that other people are out there you connect with them which then encourages your interaction with the thing and it gets deeper and it gets it starts to feed on itself mm-hmm. because i mean I, yeah absolutely look, look at things like i can think in the early 2000s of the number of times i would have a board game night with friends on like the fingers of one hand and it's usually because it was a, a holiday and all the bars were closed and it was like we're gonna sit home and play risk and it's like we we accepted that we were sad people who could not go out and be doing the fun things we wanted as opposed to now where lots of my friends will be like all right we're having like a carcassonne night or we're having a ticket to ride night and everyone comes over and like brings a plate and it's a social event Mm-hmm. I'm actually, this year, I'm going to be the social media coordinator for Big Bad Con, which is a convention here in the Bay Area that just focuses on role-playing games, like role-playing board games and also like LARPs. Okay. I think you're right. Yeah, I think that we are sort of hitting that, like, that tail end of the Ouroboros where board games are, board games are becoming more robust by by necessity, mm-hmm. like Carcassonne, you know? I mean, when we look at board games of the, of the past, you know, of like maybe our parents' generation, we're looking at what, Milborn, Cluedo. I'm so glad you called it Cluedo. See, this, I thought you were going to go with Clue, but here in Australia, everywhere it's Cluedo. Oh, uh, so that's a, that's a fun little, well, a fun little affect is that a lot of us who were Americans living in Germany watched British cable. Oh, I see. I grew up watching Sky. So I actually spell a lot of words, you know, the British style. And I, for a while, after I moved back to America, I I pronounced a lot of things in, uh, like, the British way. um, Because I grew up watching pirated British cable. (laughs) So it it is always Cluedo to me. But, you know, so you had those which were very bare bones. Because it was just, you know, it was something to do at a party. You know, and I think that we now have board games that are a lot... We have Arkham Horror. We have um, Last Night on Earth. We have Forbidden Island. We have uh, Red Dragon Inn. We have all of these... Board games that are, which are very robust, which take at least an hour to learn how to play. Yeah, actually, as you were saying that, that was something that occurred to me. It's like the whole point of a board game in our parents' generation is that you need to be able to elevate or pitch it in about 10 minutes. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. you're sitting there reading the rules, and that's boring. You need to be able to give someone a condensed version and get them started within 10 minutes. Whereas now, you're accepting that a level of research is involved. Okay, here are the basics, and here we play the expansion, which means that you get this extra board piece with these extra rules. And there's a level of depth there that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that is... I mean, I think that's a lot of factors. I think that... I think our generation is becoming less 
of a drinking culture, less of a bar, less of a, a drinking smoking culture. Mm-hmm. I have no part in that because <laughs> I'm I'm quite the lush. Yeah, as I, I just looked over my shoulder at my fireplace bar, and I'm like, yeah, I can't really, I can't really comment. <laughs> You know, and, you know, so it's like we're also trying to compete. You're, you know, these games are also trying to compete for attention with, we're trying to compete for attention with, you know, internet and like electronic amusement. But also, and this is kind of what Dungeons and Dragons is a very lonely game. It's what lonely kids play. You know, it's it's what all the kids who don't like other things the, the kids that don't go out to the movies a lot, the kids that don't play sports, you know, the, the things that, your high school or maybe even college culture revolve around. Yeah. You know, you just sort of hunker down in these rooms, friends' rooms, basements, whatever, and you just play these long, these long games where you, where you go to mountains, you battle giants D- on hills. Disarm and you, traps and... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you go into a small space and from that small space you imagine an infinite frontier. And I think that those children are now us and now we are this generation of of people of people who've grown accustomed to isolation and so we have this attention span for these long games because you know we grew up on i grew up you know playing five six hours at a time in a sweaty room drinking drinking mountain dew and eating doritos i that absolutely was my life at one point and now i get to do that again but now I have the understanding of internet culture and I have the understanding of like games culture, you know, World of Warcraft and, you know, Final Fantasy, you know, the, the electronic RPGs, you know, th- that influence, I think, you know, helped facilitate this, this appetite, this appetite and this capacity for intense, intimate, expansive games. When you mentioned this, the, the sort of the being alone and, and the isolationist aspect of it, what struck me is that that's just in the playing, let alone whoever is DMing having to write the campaign. And this idea of, I think that's another aspect, is that there's a creative, a hugely creative aspect to this. So whoever is running the game is like, okay, I need to you know, map out rooms. I need to set up scenarios. I need to, it's not just, oh, I'm going to put an orc here. I'm going to put an ogre over here and a couple of goblins in the corner. It's like, no, no, you have to plan for any eventuality. You have to, if you're a good DM, there is an aspect there where it is creation. And when you talk about knowing kind of the the rest of that world, be it through WoW or through movies or through uh, other games or whatever, that's encouraging that kind of creative freedom to be able to, all right, I'm, I'm writing this story. Other people are playing it out, but I am, I'm painting this world, essentially. Where I always hit the wall with Dungeons and Dragons is that I love conflict and I love competition, but I often find combat to be very limiting. Mm -hmm. You build these really beautiful landscapes with these complex societies, and then it just comes down to stabbing each other with swords. There's actually a couple of comic books that infuriate me in that way. There's Black Science by Rick Remender and the later stages of Jack of Fables by Bill Willingham, where Mm -hmm. both of them are sort of travel through these incredibly rich and detailed alternate universes 
where it's like you'll because they're both about interdimensional travel and so you'll skip to a world where it's all frog people and they have their own city and something but all of these beautifully rendered worlds become a backdrop for one white guy to run across shooting at somebody else and half of it's destroyed and they skip to the next world and after about four situations like that i really start to get frustrated with it because i'm like no i want to know about that thing I mean, I was a a completionist kid, and I'm probably a completionist adult, in that when I get involved in a fiction, I want to know everything about it. I want to read the backstories. I want to read the fan wikis that people have painstakingly created. I want to know more about it. So the idea of being reductionist and saying, oh, this is just a a, a basically a matte painting where I can set a stabbing, yeah, really kind of takes me out of it. The the D&D stories that I really loved hearing, and I say stories because much like with early MMOs, my experiences were in friends trying to like tell me, oh, hey, I had this great scenario happen. Where I think D&D becomes interesting is you can, is you have checks for everything from speech to, to actions. And so it's like, okay, well, we were in a scenario where we were uh, at the top of a tower and there was essentially a magic bomb about to go off. And one of my characters was big enough that the others could sit on his back. And so we rolled it right. And so what ended up happening completely outside of the scenario was all of our characters jumped on the back of this one character and he rappelled down the side of the tower as it was exploding. And we all got out okay. And I'm like, that's way better than, oh, we faced the wizard and I rolled a 20 and so I stabbed him in the chest. The end. I, yeah, I, I would try to devise these scenarios where the, the players were reporters. <laughs> of course they were. You know, yeah, they would be like wartime correspondents capturing things with like magic balls that would record video. Or I try. I tried, um, I tried doing, uh, so I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea, probably because I'm a wrestling fan, I'm fascinated with the idea of that sports are rigged. Mm-hmm. And so I, I try to do what I was in, when I was in high school, I tried to do a, a campaign where the, there was some like wacky sport, it was kind of like Quidditch or something. And the players had to discover who was rigging it, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that's, those things really appeal to me. And maybe that's part of why we have all these diverse spectrum of robust games is that a lot of people just got tired of fucking stabbing a wizard. <laughs> you know, like Also just saying um, uh Reda J is a great name for a cub reporter. Just saying. <laughs> that sort of got me away that's I guess sort of what facilitated my breakup with Dungeons and Dragons and moved me on to other to maybe to be a writer even is that i i just kept hitting this wall of you, know, you get these monster manuals and i and i would read the monster manual for fun because it's this like incredible taxonomy this this amazing zoology of 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 wacky fucking flora and fauna and then it's like this is a pan-dimensional jackal that Eats the color mauve. <laughs> this is a displacer beast, which is basically a cat that's also a lizard that's invisible when it turns sideways. <laughs> right. And then it's, you know, it's like, and it, it comes out at night. It gestates its young for three weeks and stab it in the neck <laughs> for a plus two to your attack roll. <laughs> like the minute you put it like that god it really is reductive isn't it the idea of okay here is this amazing thing and it's there for you to kill it yeah it th- this idea where it's like okay this is this rich history how did this thing get developed how did this thing how did it thrive how does it live where's it from Wh- when you kill it <laughs> and and there's a lot of these sort of fail safes that dungeons and dragons had built into it to try and 
prevent the player from really interrogating it. You know, where a lot of these beasts have alignments. So, for instance, there's there's a llama Sioux. And a llama Sioux is a lion oh, I, I've heard of, wait a minute, I've heard of those. That's like a llama where it's a self-insert character for the DM. And it's really good <laughs> at everything. And, uh, you know, we would we would have failed if not for llama Sioux. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it it goes to it goes to uh, Dragon Prom with the handsomest frost giant, and yeah, and and the and the coolest giant in school says, "Hey, you're real cool, and you could probably fix my starship." <laughs> Straight in the ditch. <laughs> no. Sorry, um, you were saying talk about the llama Sioux. Oh, just that there are these like fucking lions with human faces. <laughs> And apparently they're so evolved that they think that human society is beneath them. And that, to me, I always find that really fascinating. It's like, you don't have thumbs. <laughs> like, I have, like, this town has running water and a guy who can, like, make metal really hot and then turn it into, like, and then turn it into something you can cut a steak with. Or, you know, this other guy can take, like, you know, something like a jewel that was taken out of the uh, out of the earth and then imprison a ghost in it. Tell me how your people, your species who cannot brush their own hair, <laughs> explain to me, please, where you deviated uh, and how your society became so advanced that you didn't need plumbing. It's one of those situations I was I was just reading about this the other day where the minute you start to think about centaurs at all the whole thing falls apart. Where it's like, again, you have a species that cannot reach its own butt, and you have a species where if you think about the crossover, it's like a horse can stand up and walk around about two minutes after it's born. If you So you have the bottom end of a horse that can walk and this floppy human baby on top. <laughs> it's like that's going to be awkward for about three years. <laughs> and to keep humans from interrogating that, they're just like, oh, well, the, well this like... Lamasu, king of the jungle, but also with wings and a face that always looks like it's about to say, I thought the new Passion Pit <laughs> LP was just very derivative. You know, like they're they're good. They're like chaotic good. You can't fight them. They're they're just good people. Like, and then on the other hand, you have orcs, right? Who are just your standard bad guy. Always chaotic evil. Right. Well, in the in certain sections of certain editions of DD, they're basically just like brainwashed drones. Like it's really easy in the lore. Most like big orc clans are led by a non-orc because orcs are just that fucking small picture, you know, mm. like. They're just, just, they're just not good at, they're not good at delegating or organizing or synergy. So like it's a hobgoblin or it's a sorcerer. Or occasionally a half-orc that's, that's risen up. You know, I see that and I see a marginalized indigenous population. Because that's the other thing about orcs is that they all feud with each other. And that's consistent in WoW, that's consistent in Warhammer, that or bands of orcs just fight amongst each other. You know, there's these, there are these barbarians that are roving bands of barbarians that yeah, fight a, each other. Yeah, a group of orcs is called an argument <laughs> and then you know occasionally they, they're led under a leader and then the leader's like fuck these humans you know that to me is a indigenous allegory i was gonna say the story pretty much writes itself right but you know in the books they're like oh they're, they're chaotic evil they really hate vampire weekend <laughs> they'll you know kill you in your sleep you know if they find someone smarter than them to pick the lock you know it, it just there's these aspects of dungeons and dragons that 
that make it so that for you to enjoy it as the game intends, you basically have to become a sort of one-dimensional John Wayne type, <laughs> which is I find interesting because I actually tried. Um, are, you, are you familiar with westerns much? Do you have westerns in in Australia? <laughs> yes, we have. You've seen the proposition, right? We have westerns in Australia. <laughs> no, I haven't seen the proposition. It's real good. You should see it. Oh, great! So, in uh, one of the most famous westerns is High Noon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying. No, no, it's fine. I'm just... I, I know of this high noon of which you speak. <laughs> well, so John Wayne hated high noon so much because in John Wayne's idea, high noon was very un-American. It was very liberal. And so he actually made Rio Bravo as a response to it. Mm-hmm. Because in his mind, a lawman should never question whether or not he has to gun down a bunch of people. <laughs> And that's part of the fantasy, right? In in Dungeons and Dragons is you get a bunch of, you know, I don't want to say betas because I'm not an MRA, but you get you get people who don't often embody power mm-hmm. in 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 social stratas. And then you give them this fantasy that on a blank slate with just a bit of luck and, you know, enough persistence they could slaughter as majestic and as endangered an animal as they wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> and it facilitates this sort of juvenile hero worship, which is, you know, that we now have is, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that Dungeons and Dragons was a blueprint for the space marine phenomena. So you said space marine phenomena, and I'm thinking, what are they, are they naturally occurring? It's like with the right set of circumstances, uh, you know, a change of wind, the right primordial soup, and someone with giant shoulder pads will spawn from, from a swamp. <laughs> you got to rotate your swamps though <laughs> you got to make sure that like if you're growing a, a guy in this swamp the other three swamps have time to rejuvenate and replenish the soil see now i just want to make jokes about building additional pylons but i'm, I'm crossing the streams there <laughs> T- thinking of dungeons and dragons as a formative thing did it get you interested in more fantasy or were you already there I actually feel really burned out by fantasy as a result of Dungeons and Dragons. Is it is it because of the the highly allegorical nature of it that you were mentioning before? That you know it, it's playing out these kind of existing tropes of behavior. Yeah, but it's also I think it's, it's just too big. A lot of high fantasy wants to focus on the big picture, big, 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 big picture, mm-hmm. and that becomes very one dimensional. So you get like, a, did you ever see the Dungeons and Dragons the movie? Oh yes, did I? <laughs> you know, I think that a much more interesting movie would have just been if they had been like, yeah, this weird like apartheid of mages and non mages exists. Let's talk about that. But instead, it's like, no, we gotta go and like we gotta go rob some places, and I gotta get stabbed, yeah, and then there's we've this, gotta like, rob a temple that is based off of a British game show that no one else right? Has watched. Yeah. With a cameo that no Americans will get. Yep. Um. <laughs> and even a catch. God, he even said the catchphrase too, didn't he? Mm-hmm. And, and then yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna have Jeremy Irons and have Marlon Wayans get stabbed because he's the one person of color in this film, so he's gotta die. Yeah, and I guess that's part of where a lot of MMOs lose me is that they try to be so big, and I'm I'm someone who's like really I'm really interested in the small stuff. I'm really excited about small systems. Something like Skyrim, where it is this giant, you know, enormous, incredibly detailed world. And if you want, you can completely ignore your um you know, your main quest and just be like, you know what, I'm just gonna be like a wandering 
blacksmith and I'm going to, you know, go looking for items and I'm going to find things and smith them until I, you know, ding my blacksmithing stats. And along the way, I might find a village where there's got someone who will give me a preferential thing and I'll discover a, an abandoned ship nearby. And I'm like, I spent like weeks in Skyrim where I didn't touch a quest, where I was just going around exploring and finding things. And again, like you said, discovering those small systems of, okay, here's a guy who I know will, will always buy books. And there's someone else over here who will always buy uh, raw metals and get and buy them back. And having this kind of complicated back and forth between them. Or the people who play GTA and all they do is they're a cabbie. Like they pick up fares and do all the cabbie missions. Or Fallout. God, Fallout 4, where you can just go around and manage your settlements and send people from one to the other. And hey, I made them a TV room and they're a little bit happier. Like that, that kind of small game setting. I think has really flourished in the video in the video game community. We all want to believe that our modern society is circumstantial and tied to this reality, right? But there are aspects of our society that would absolutely carry over to a fantasy society. For instance, in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, you can pay a certain amount of gold to drag a dead party member to a temple and have them resuscitated. Okay. There would absolutely be Groupons for that. <laughs> that no doubt there would be like dead people loans. You know, like you have a car loan, you know, you would you would have financing structures. You would have a system where uh, some cleric, you know, or acolyte who's like, nah, I can't raise this guy. He's like fucking gone. And and the person who's trying to revive that person is so angry, he has to get like his supervisor. <laughs> Put me onto your manager. Right, yeah. Like, He's on another call, think, Sarah. He can't handle this right now. <laughs> that's what about fantasy kind of loses me, is we want to believe that these things that frustrate us in real life would not carry over to a fantasy world. And it is absolutely not true. I can just imagine like getting getting an extra bonus to all of your checks if you're the mayor of this location on Foursquare. Yeah, <laughs> you would absolutely... <laughs> <laughs> absolutely in in like a fantasy world you would get people people for the ethical treatment of dragons and they wouldn't care that like drag most dragons are fucking assholes and they would just like embroidery or tapestries showing dead people and just like hoist them up on picket signs to like make you feel bad about slaying dragons you wouldn't wear a human tooth around your neck <laughs> Yeah, you know, or yeah, like they would they would enact these plays in the town square of a woman sitting on top of her child, like a, 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 a horde of her children <laughs> and and trying to defend them from roving knights and be like, see, you wouldn't like that. Don't try and steal a dragon's treasure like those people would absolutely exist. There's no we're not reality sucks because people are imperfect and and the the answer to those things that suck about human life is to just face those like admit that we're not perfect admit that meritocracy doesn't exist and whatever system we create there will be things that like there will be cruelty there will be malice there will be negligence and we have to deal with that the the answer to that is not well if there were dragons <laughs> and there was a wizard just, just to take this even more... Um, further down the rabbit hole. Further down the rabbit hole. Martin Luther got persecuted 
by the Catholic Church because he was one of the first people who said, no, translate the Bible into German. native language. Teach the Bible to common folk. There would, a- there would absolutely, like, wherever, if there was magic in your town, all the mages would be killing each other because, like, one mage would be like, no, I think that we should translate the runes into the common speech so that everyone can use them. And everyone else is going, are you nuts? <laughs> yeah. And then some 900 year old fucking lich with like horns for ears or whatever is like, fuck that. I didn't, you know, I didn't enslave and, and absorb the souls of 9 million innocent people so that you wouldn't spend 40 years of your life learning this completely useless alphabet. Like, there would be these ridiculous internal political squabbles. You would have a Neil deGrasse Tyson (laughs) in in a fantasy world who would break your heart because, like, you know, actually drakes aren't dragons at all. (laughs) He he would have a Twitter feed where he would go, well, actually... You know, if, if you were to have fought that dragon, you wouldn't have found any traction with your, your middle pauldrons on the side of the wall. But dragons don't really breathe fire. They breathe a combustible chemical which reacts with oxygen. <laughs> yeah, like, your fantasy world would be just as stupid, just as boring, and just as irritating as your real life. Which, which is my normal interruption to throw in. Everyone should read Discworld because yes. so much of that is, is parsed in that series. What's your favorite Discworld novel? I love Nightwatch, I think is my favorite, like as a, as a single work. Nightwatch or Going Postal because by then the world is so established that you can set a different kind of story within it and have it be just like hugely successful. What I love about, yeah, what I love about Going Postal is that the villain sucks. Oh yeah, he's... It's just like, he's a pirate, whatever. Like... <laughs> The, there's no building of this antagonist, like, and he's never poised as a threat. Like the 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 world building is so deft and it's so solid that you don't even care that he wrote in this like pirate bad guy at the last minute and gave him a bunch of like nonsensical capitalist jargon. Well, the thing is, I think as you say that, that's the point because part of that book is part of the message of that book is how to be successful, you pretty much have to be a con artist. And this idea of someone coming up from nowhere and telling everyone that he's important, and then he tells it hard enough that people believe it. And therefore his power is in the belief of others and the structure he builds up around him like the as as sort of the the grand trunk being established in that book and then moist being set up as this uh this alternative to it both of those both him as the hero and the setup of the villain are a complete sham and that's part of the story which again like you say it's so deft it's so good the only issue i have with Discworld is that in order to get people into it you have to be very careful about how you introduce them and which ones you start with based upon their personality and stuff although i stand by guards guards men at arms feet of clay as like sort of your your primer that will get you in because it's the most grounded of the series although i am also a huge fan of the witches series as well i think that the hog father is really good as an intro it's very in jokey Mm -hmm. and very referential of itself but i think the hog father is good because some people are just that fucking desperate for a christmas movie (laughs) same with soul music and with moving pictures as well you get these standalone ones where it's like okay here's my extended hollywood pastiche and as someone who's just finished listening to, I think it's like 65 episodes of You Must Remember This, I now want to go back and reread Moving Pictures to see if I can like map things to like Louis Meyer and other such early magnates in the studio system. 
we're just about ready to wrap it up. So, Jetta, if people want to find your stuff, where would they go about looking? So you can find my uh, website, FryHavoc, F-R-Y-H-A-V-O-C.com. I do recipes. I do reviews. Next month, which starts in a couple days, I'm going to have videos where I make people food and I let them lecture on academic topics. Oh, cool. On Twitter, I'm J-E-T-T-A underscore R-A-E. Look up the greatest podcast dot today. If you're listening to this and you're like, by golly, I really, I want to write this polyamorous lactation fetish romance novel, but I don't know who can be in my corner. Well, let me tell you something, humanoid. I'll take you straight to the top. <laughs> I was about to say, we're ready to believe you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks once again to Jetta Ray for her time. This week's signature cocktail is based around some of Jetta's favorite ingredients and is titled The Elixir of Courage. This drink is a pousse cafe, meaning all ingredients are poured gently over the back of a spoon, creating several distinct layers. In an oversized shot glass, pour half an ounce of coffee liqueur, such as Mr. Black or Kahlua. Very slowly, over the back of a spoon, pour one half ounce of silver tequila. Finally, just as slowly, pour one half ounce of creme de cassis. Gives a plus five bonus to charisma, does 2d6 of physical damage to surrounding enemies, and makes prices 5% lower when buying or selling at the gimmick table. The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on The Math of You, send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, or Lokified82 on Snapchat. Fair warning, my Snapchat is basically pictures of my dog, my two cats, and things I'm about to eat. Next week, I'll be talking to Andrew Cunningham of the Appointment Television Podcast, Overdue Podcast, and Ars Technica about the fascination of Pokemon. Join me, won't you? There's also the racism element, you know, like, <laughs> wow, just, just swinging for the fences on that one. It's like, you know, oh, yeah, beer and also racism. Well, OK, so the, the sausage races are like Italian sausage, chorizo, 
Holy sausage. Um, bratwurst. So you have, you know, you have a guy, you have a sausage that's in lederhosen. Oh, and you have another sausage that's wearing a sombrero. And you have another sausage that has a <laughs> chef hat and a huge Italian mustache, right? Oh like, my God. that's easier to personify. Like, your average American... And not to work myself into a shoot about, you know, Americans, but... <laughs> about the you know, the, the uh, secondary uh, racial characteristics, which is kind of like... <laughs> yeah, 